I got to preface this. I usually do. My sermons are always to me first, okay? So keep that in mind. And if you're a Christian, I want you to know that God has called you to a holy life. Okay? Keep that in mind because that's our focus this morning. So we're going to look at uh, several different passages, not just one that we're going to start and end, but several. Um, I'll mention several others. I'll have uh, kind of the main ones on the screen for you so that if you're the note-taking type, I would encourage you to have your pen ready or your phone or whatever. Take pictures if you need. I'm going to go through some of these passages pretty quickly in terms of, uh, you know, uh, Old Testament, New Testament uh, type of thing. And so I'm going to ask you if you would, because you're going to have, this is one of those where you're going to have some homework. All right? Ain't nobody smiling yet. You're going to have some homework. So last week, our pastor, he began a new series, A Life That Is Called. Right? And he took us in last week's message uh, and reminded us that we're called to believe. And he went through the, 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 the lesson, the, the sermon, and teaching us and reminding us what that means. What does it mean to believe? Ultimately, uh, belief is, uh, biblical belief is a type of thing that leads to obedience. And so he took us through that. Well, today's topic is holiness. To be holy. The fact that we as Christians are called, actually commanded and called to live a holy life. If you're a Christian, I want you to know God has called you to be holy. And he has not only called our pastor to be holy, or a pastor in general, or a missionary, but every Christian is called to live a holy life. And so it goes for you and I just as much. And I can't even think, honestly, of anyone outside the church who would disagree that Christians are to be holy, right? So we're going to work on that. And so what, what I want to look at, though, this morning is what does it mean, right, to be holy? What, what does that even look like in our life today? And not only that, how do we do it? And so during our time this morning, I want to do three things. I want to look at uh, what is holy defined. Like, what is it? What does it mean? Uh, then I want to answer, how do we do it? And then, finally, why? Why bother? Does it even matter? And so this ought to be, a, uh, hopefully, a very practical lesson, uh, a practical uh, study for us this morning as we go through several uh, Scripture passages to answer those questions for us. And so my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would give each of us uh, wisdom and power, that he would empower us to put into practice what he teaches us from his word. Okay? So as a matter of fact, I want to ask for that favor right now. Will you join me as we go to him in prayer? Father, we need you. We're helpless and defenseless and hopeless without you. Even though we have your word in our laps or on our devices we can't even begin to understand, much less put it into practice without you. And so our prayer this morning, Father, is that as we continue our worship service through preaching and teaching in your word, that your Holy Spirit, who is in us, 
would teach us, guide us, guard us, convict us, empower us, and give us the wisdom that we need to put into practice whatever it is that he teaches us. And we ask these things as humbly as we know how. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the first one is relatively easy, okay? What, how do you define holy? Most people who've been in church can, can define holy. What is it? Set apart. Set apart. You know, uh, I, I thought the same thing, and I agree with that. Uh, you might be surprised to know that theologians don't agree on the definition of holy. <laughs> so we're not going to uh, delve too much into that. But I did pull a, uh, a, a definition out of a theological uh, dictionary, uh, and it defines holy uh, to be set apart. Holy means to be set apart for all practical purposes. That's what it means. Um, and uh, here it is here. Uh, holy is to be set apart, consecrated, dedicated, and it refers to the quality of God who is transcendently distinctive, unique, majestic, perfect, and totally pure. Sound good? Sounds like God, right? Say yes. Okay, good. You're awake. Holy is what God is. He's high. He's lifted up. He's on his throne. He's sovereign. He's in control. That means same thing as sovereign. I guess that's redundant. He always has been. He always will be. That never has changed. That never will change. But he's completely in control uh, over all his creation. He is above all things. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is always everywhere all the time. He's righteous. He's wise. He's loving. He's patient. Merciful. He's just. We could go on. But here's the most amazing thing as, as I try to consider the attributes of God. Everything that he is, he is perfectly and completely and infinitely so. That's God. God is holy. He is the one to whom the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He is infinitely above and separate from us and from the rest of his creation. And so when you start to get a glimpse of the holiness of God, you start to understand why King David asked, what is man that, that you care about him? What are we? Because we are not that. That's in Psalms 8. His spirit, God's spirit is called the what? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. And if you ever struggle with trying to understand or get a glimpse of the holiness of God, all you have to do is turn towards the end of Job, the book of Job, chapter 38, and then you start to read the response when God finally answers, when God finally speaks, and he responds to Job. Replace the name Job with your name, and you'll start to understand a little bit about the holiness of God. Okay, so holy is to be distinctly separate. separate. And, and there are different levels of holy, and it applies to different things. It can apply to people, places, not just God, things. Uh, and, and throughout the Bible, we read about uh, Israel was called to be a holy nation, right? 
We have holy people. We have uh, uh, holy water. There's the, the holy ground that Moses walked on. Uh, we have holy utensils in the temple. In the temple, we have the holy place. And then we have the most holy place, the holy of holies, and, 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 and the utensils in that temple. They're, they were set apart. They were not to be used for common use. You don't take the temples out of the temple like King Nebuchadnezzar did and Daniel and use them for your dinner party because terrifying things will happen. These are set apart wholly for use in the temple for worship dedicated to God. So there's all sorts of things. There's holy days, uh, uh, holy places. Uh, so to be holy... For all practical purposes, let's just agree that it means to be set apart for God, not for common use. Okay? And that applies to you and I. Believers are called to be holy. And so the first passage I want to turn with you to is in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. It picks up in the middle of a sentence, as Paul wrote, Verse 9 is the middle of a sentence. It's referring to God. It says, God who saved us and called us with a what? With a so even our calling is holy. A holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So our calling is holy. God saved us. And he called us, it says, with a holy calling. Why? For his own purpose, it says. And what is his purpose? To live in fellowship with him for eternity. That's his purpose. That's God's eternal purpose that was granted to us how? Or in whom or through whom? Through Christ Jesus. And this was done from all eternity, from eternity past. Not based on anything any of us have done. This is, uh, this is God. And so... The answer, by the way, to King David's question, what is man? The, the, why do you even care? It's because God loves us and he wants us to live holy lives so that we can fellowship with him and live with him in eternity. That's why. That's what man is. God chooses to love us. But holy, uh, the holy life, it, 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 it doesn't begin after you die and go to heaven. Okay. Here's the kicker for us. It begins now, at the moment of salvation, here, in this life. And so your best life now is one that is living in holy obedience to the God who saved you. Okay? It's important to know what it means, what holy means. But we're not called to know just simply what holy means. We're called to be holy. And so that gets to the second thing I want to cover with you, the second question, how? How do we do it? How are we to be holy? How do we be holy? I don't, I don't know if that's proper English. One of y'all can tell me. How do we be holy? How do we live holy? How are we to be holy? And so when we know what holy means, it's easy to say, well, that's God. God's holy. We know that. We don't disagree with that. But it's a whole nother thing to say that we got to say those things about ourselves. God is holy. We are not and yet we're called to be holy. It seems like a contradiction or a paradox. But as we'll see, it's not. It's by His doing. And, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think I have that one up there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote uh, in the answer to the, uh, at least one answer to the question of how are we to be holy? It is by 
His doing, talking about God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. We talked about that just a little while ago in Sunday school. He became to us wisdom from God. We're not wise. The wisdom of Christ is applied to us. And righteousness, we're not righteous. The righteousness of Christ is applied to us. And sanctification, we're going to come back to that one, and redemption. By His doing, you're in Christ Jesus. He's talking about you're born again, you're redeemed, you're saved, whatever you want to call it. Okay, you're in Christ Jesus. And how? By His doing. And why? Uh, or, or how again? He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At the moment of salvation, you're declared by God the judge righteous. At the end, you'll be redeemed, meaning delivered from not only sin's penalty, but sin's, pre sin's, sin's presence as well. In heaven, there will be no sin. But in between that, you have that word sanctification. And guess what the word sanctification means? It's the process of being made holy. From the moment of salvation, justification, declared righteous, till you die. Sanctification is that process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's maturing in the faith. It's the Holy Spirit working out in you fruit of the Spirit. Uh, fruit of the Spirit as described in Galatians chapter 5, but also fruit of converts. There will be people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of your testimony, a result of your ministry, a result of your faithfulness, a result of your holiness. And so there will be these fruits that the Scriptures talk about. So by His doing, you who are in Christ, you're in Christ Jesus by His doing, who Jesus became wisdom to us from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay? And then after that, what is our responsibility? After all that, what do we do right now, today, in our walk? Well, I would suggest not necessarily in order of importance, but I'm going to mention first we need to change our attitude towards sin. We Christians need to change our attitude towards sin because we are too comfortable with some sins. I read a book a lot of years ago. It's a little book, easy to read, but very convicting. By a man named Jerry Bridges. Called The Pursuit of Holiness. And in his book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, Bridges, when it comes to the question of how... He says we have three problems. We have three problems when it comes to how do we live a holy life? How do we pursue a holiness? Real quick, number one, our first problem is our attitude, attitude towards sin is self-centered. That sounds weird to me. Still sounds weird when I say it. But he says our attitude towards sin is self-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. God has called us to walk in obedience, not victory. And victory will come, but only as a byproduct of obedience. All right? Second problem. He says, 
We have misunderstood living by faith to mean that no effort at all is required on our part when it comes to holiness. In other words, we have to face the fact that we have personal responsibility before God when it comes to walking in holiness. And third, third problem, I said it already, we don't take some sin seriously. We categorize our sin. He says we categorize some sins into that which is unacceptable and that which may be tolerated a bit. And we need to realize, he says, that in God's eyes, there are no little sins. There are no acceptable sins. With God, all sin is evil. God hates all sin, even your little ones, just like the little one Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So how can we be holy? Well, we need to change our attitude towards some sins. He hates them all. How do we obey so we experience victory? Romans chapter 6 is one of the places you can turn that deal with that. That's, that chapter is probably at least half a dozen or so sermons just out of Romans chapter 6. But how do we obey so that we experience victory? How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling like we're called to do in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 1? And how do we develop the same attitude as God toward all sin? Well, I'll tell you, it's impossible without the Holy Spirit. Okay? 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. I have those up on the screen. 1 John 2, chapter Chapter 2, verse 20, it says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone get, be described as that, that person is anointed or that song was anointed or that prayer or that sermon or uh, whatever the, 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 the service was anointed? Maybe you've used that word to describe others. Um, you have an anointing, it says in 1 John 2, 20, from the Holy One and you all know. In verse 27, as for you, talking to Christians, believers, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. That word anointed, interesting, literally means to be set apart very similar to the word holy. You have this holiness, this anointing from Him. He is in you. How? Through His Holy Spirit. His indwelling Holy Spirit is the anointing. So it's not only super spiritual Christians that have an anointing. If you're a Christian, you have the anointing too because the anointing is the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers you to live this life of holiness that we're all called to live. Without God's Holy Spirit, none of this that we're commanded to do is even remotely possible. We can fake it for a spell. A non-believer can do things that appear to be holy, but there's a word for someone who is pretending to be one thing and is something else. I forget what that word is. In our Sunday school studies, um, we've been going through the Old Testament reading uh, familiar stories. And uh, last, last week, uh, you know, we've been learning how their stories are recorded for us to learn from. How do we uh, put, uh, apply what we learn from their examples to our own lives? 
And we started a new one this morning, and last week we, uh, we're going through this, th- this study here. Last week we wrapped up this section. Uh, in this book, it wrapped up with the, the story of King Solomon's life. Right? And before that, it was King David. And there are, it's full of examples, the entire Old Testament. It's, it's in there. But I, I wanted to show you this, just in case you haven't seen this in Sunday school. When it talks about David, it, starts, it talks about God first as the king. It says lots of uh, all the scriptural things about God as the king. But what does it say there about David? It says David the chosen king, right? And so this is the first header as it introduces the study on David. David's the chosen king. And so that section or that particular week of study looks at how David, out of all of his brothers, this wee little uh, smelly shepherd boy, this scrawny little fella, is the one that God chose to be uh, king over his people. So David, the chosen king, and it goes on. It said the next week, it's titled David, the victorious king. The week after that, David, the faithful king. The week after that, David, the failed king. Now, if you've read through the Bible one time, we all know about David's failure, failures, right? His infamous failures, the big ones, the ones that we would never do. First, he got another man's wife pregnant. Then, an attempts to cover up the sin basically committed murder, uh, forcing a man to go out on the front lines where David knew he'd be killed, right? It wasn't until sometime later David gets confronted by the prophet. David, who is described by God himself as a man after God's own heart, it has an entire study called David the Failed King. But then it doesn't stop there. They're all failed. You have Solomon. We just talked about him some more this morning in Sunday school. The wise king. Solomon, the, uh, the wise king. The, the next week we get to Solomon. We got Solomon, the wise king. We all know about Solomon's wisdom, right? God said, whatever you want. He says, I, I, I want smarticles. God says, I'm giving you that plus everything else. David, I mean, uh, Solomon becomes known as the wisest man. His wisdom, it says in 1 uh, Kings, says it, it was so vast. His wisdom, his understanding and knowledge were so vast that they were vast as the sands of the seashore in 1 Kings chapter 4. So we got Solomon the wise king. We got Solomon the worshiping king. Builds the temple, right? At the height The the lone superpower on the planet is the nation of Israel during this time. And you probably guessed where it's going, because if you read it, you know the story. Solomon, the failed king. Well, how did Solomon fail? He's the wisest man who's ever lived. If he's failed, and David, the man after God's own heart, has failed, what hope do I have? Maybe my little sins that I've categorized as not so bad, it's not murder, it's not... Uh, adultery. It's not, I didn't have 700 wives that I then followed into idolatry, worshiping other pagan idols and gods, false gods, which was Solomon's failure. 
I didn't do any of that. So if, if they did all that and they are okay in God's eyes, then maybe I, I might be okay with my little sins over here. That's how the mind works. And it's sinful. That's how we default. My childhood friend justified his adultery based on the fact that Solomon had 700 wives and was blessed by God. It's not how it works. That is a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of God's mercy. So if we're called to live a holy life, and we are, how do we do it in such a way that we don't end up with a Bible study written about us, Kevin, the failed whatever, <laughs> man? <laughs> how, do you, how do you avoid that? If we're called to live a holy life, how do we do it in such a way that we end up how we started the day we got saved? How do we avoid failure like David and Solomon and all the others that are paraded for us through the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do we become holy and how do we stay holy? That's the question. And I'm so glad you asked. I have four things to give you. Uh, not in the scriptures, but a story. I've shared about uh, the story of Evan Roberts from this pulpit before, so maybe this might be familiar to you. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but suffice it to say, Evan Roberts was used by God. And when he was 11 years old, he was a blue-collar coal miner, but he, he didn't get caught up in that lifestyle. Probably the closest thing we have today to that around here is working off on rigs and stuff like that. It was a very crude group of men that he was always around, night and day. Some of you know what that's like. But it didn't affect Evan. So he, as a young man, convinced his pastor, he's around 25 or 6 years old, to lead a small youth group, a prayer group. This guy was so fanatical about his prayer that he would pray for four hours, he would fall asleep, and when he would wake up four hours later, he'd pray for four more hours. And his landlord thought he was insane, so she evicted him. I don't know anybody like that in danger of being evicted because of their prayer life. But that was Evan. So Evan Roberts, his, 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 his pastor agrees. He starts this small prayer group with youth, teenagers. And he focused on four things. And I think I have these up. The first thing, and by the way, this is where I, I, I already understand and realize this was a struggle for me. Probably going to lose some of you. Probably going to lose most of you because you ain't going to want to do it. And if you have that kind of reaction, I want to tell you, you have some business to do with the Lord this morning. This four simple uh, steps Evan Roberts preached to that youth group until the Holy Spirit and God's glory fell. Number one, confess all known sin. All known sin. Confess it. Confess it means to say the same thing about it God says about it. Confess it so that you can repent from it. Number two, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. He didn't say anything sinful. Anything that might even have a hint towards that, if it's doubtful, deal with it and get rid of it. 
Number three, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. I think that's where most of us get lost, if I was to guess. I try to imagine, what's the next thing, what's the next thing that's going to happen in Bible history and prophecy? The next thing that is set to happen is the rapture. Now, we can argue about when. There's all kinds of debate. That's not going to be settled till it happens. But the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture. When God says to Jesus, go get him. Can you imagine if Jesus says, well, hold on a second. I'm over here with Peter and David. We got some pretty good worship going on right now. I'm going to do what you said, but just hold on a second. Can you imagine the angels, Michael, the archangel, being commanded to go? Well, hold on just a second. I got questions. Can you imagine that? (laughs) But that's what we do. We doubt. We are called to be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. Whatever, wherever, whenever that means. Number four, confess Christ publicly. We already know from studies that have been done, the vast majority, more than 90% of people who profess to be Christian, born-again evangelical Christians, will go to their grave without ever having shared the gospel one single time in their entire life. But if we would confess all known sin, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in our lives, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly and confess Christ publicly, we'd be on a good start to living a holy life. And then what happened about 100, almost 120 or so years ago when Evan Roberts was preaching this, God used that, and over the course of the next year, more than 100,000 people were saved. And oftentimes, they would come in, and they weren't hearing sermons. Formal sermons often weren't even preached. There were proclamations, the gospel was shared, there was prayer, there was repentance through tears, more than 100,000 people. It's called the Great Welsh Revival. You can look it up. The Great Welsh Revival. And by the way, those four things, that's not a one and done type of thing. That's every day. From now on to the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, we're to do those things. Constantly, daily, reminding ourselves of the holiness of God and the fact that all sin is an affront to his holiness, an offense. And you do that, and you're well on your way to living a practical and holy life. And just real quick before we go on, one example of what not to do. One thing of what not to do is to look at examples like David or Solomon or your pastor or anyone else and compare yourself to them. They're not our standard. 
The standard is the Lord Jesus. Spelled out for us in his word. So if you find yourself comparing yourself to them and saying, well, if they've done this, then maybe you're way, you're not even in the right ballpark at that point. Do not compare yourself to others and you'll be okay. All right. So the third question I mentioned earlier is why? Why be holy? Why bother? After all, we're all human. We're all sinners. We all sin. No one is perfect. We're all plagued with this body of sin that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7, this body of sin that he, he just goes on and on for that whole. And why bother? Well, I'll give you two, two verses about why. Why bother? The first one is in 1 Peter 1.16. Um, 1 Peter 1.16. Because it is written. Where is it written? In the book of Leviticus an entire book that nobody likes to read on those reading plans when you have to go through the thing in the year, an entire book devoted to holy living, holiness, being set apart. Leviticus. It is written back in Leviticus, you shall be holy, this is God talking, for why? I am holy. That's why. God is holy, therefore you must be holy. And by the way, if you're an attorney or someone who's familiar with how laws are written, that word shall what does that mean? Is it optional? That word shall means it's a commandment. You shall be holy. Why? Because God is holy. It is not optional. It is a commandment. He's not saying you're only human. Do the best you can with what you have. I understand. He says, no, I'm not going to grade on a curve. I'm not going to let things slide because you're human and everybody sins. That's not what he's saying at all. He's given a command. It's in both Testaments. You're called to live a holy life because it is written and because the one that you call God and Father and Lord and Savior is holy. That's why. Another example, we could look up bunches of them. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Some translations started off by saying follow peace. Some say pursue peace. Some say um, strive for peace with all men. They all come from the same Uh, the same word in the original. If you've ever watched, say, an Olympic uh, race, when they're racing around the track, and they get to the end of the race, and what's across the track? The tape, right? And those runners who get to the tape, what are they doing for that tape? They're reaching for it, right? They're striving for that tape. That word, follow peace, pursue peace, strive for for peace, that's the word used uh, used there. That's how we should be when it comes to peace. Strive for peace with all men and what? Holiness without which nobody's going to see the Lord. Can I say the reason most of us don't live holy lives is because we're not even in the race, much less striving for the goal. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us the reason why, because without holiness, you will not see the Lord. If you're not holy, you cannot fellowship with him, not in this life, nor in the next life. It's not going to happen. 
I think I, I would say holiness is the great equalizer. If your life isn't holy, you might call yourself a Christian, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. We know this because of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, just as one example. I think I have that one. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, but it really starts in verse 6. <clears throat> in verse 6, Paul writes, the mind set on flesh is death. He's, he's using flesh <clears throat> kind of to describe lost people and the spirit to describe saved or born again people. The mindset on flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so. You can't blame a lost person for behaving like a lost person. They're lost. They're not even able. In verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, no matter how hard they try. In verse 9, however, you, talking to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. How do you live a holy life? Well, the first thing you have to do is be born again. Then it's a question of obedience. Romans chapter 6 again. Paul tells us to Christians, you're not your own. You don't even own your body. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the prophet confronts the king, King Saul, right before he announces that the kingdom has been taken away from him. And King Saul was sent to conquer a nation and kill everyone. Men, women, children, animals, everything. Take nothing for yourself. So on their victory parade back, Samuel meets him out. And what happens? Saul says, the Lord gave us victory. We're celebrating. Everything's great. Samuel says, what, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? Oh, that. Well, we wanted to take some of the, some of the best stuff from where we just conquered and offer that up to your God and worship. Oh, that. So then the result was what? The kingdom was taken from Saul. And Samuel says this, obedience is better than sacrifice. God didn't want that sacrifice. What God wanted is your obedience. Sacrifice, if you get it backwards, sacrifice without obedience, that gets you nothing. It's not only not received by God, it's actively rejected by him. It's opposed by him. Sacrifice, how do we do that? We don't, we don't sacrifice sheep, right? We, we might offer up sacrifices of praise through song, sacrifices financially through giving, sacrifice of time, talent, treasure, whatever it is that you offer up to the Lord and what we might call tithes and offerings. He's not interested in that. Unless it's preceded by obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In Romans 6, 
Paul wrote to the church, your slaves are the one whom you obey, whether slaves to sin leading to death or slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. The late Adrian Rogers said it this way, to know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. To trust him is to obey him. And to obey him is to be blessed by him. But see, you got to know him first. Because you can't trust him if you don't know him. And you certainly can't obey him either. Because you don't have his spirit. You might have a form of holiness that Paul describes. But in his second letter that he wrote to Timothy, he warns, Paul did, without Christ, your empty religion is going to be the basis for your eternal damnation on judgment day. That's not a light matter. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 tells us that on judgment day, hell will be filled with church people. I encourage you to read Matthew chapter 7 later. Who remembers the first thing I said? Told you there was homework. I said, if you're a Christian, God has called you to a, uh, to a holy life. Right? Remember that? Were y'all here? But I didn't address those of you who might not be Christians. What are you supposed to do? God has called Christians to a, uh, to a holy life. But you know what? If you're not a Christian or you don't know, he's called you to a holy life as well. Your problem is you can't do it. <coughs> Already covered that. It's impossible. In Romans 12:1, Paul wrote, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, he's writing to the brethren, to believers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. That word present is a continuous thing. The way it's written is to be done every day, all the time, ongoing. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Your body is a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And based on what we saw in Romans 8, whatever is offered up to God by a lost person is rejected. You need his Holy Spirit, and, in, and if you're not holy, you will not see God, no matter how much you try to deceive yourself or convince yourself that you're okay. I talked to a person several years ago who said, me and God have a deal. If that deal, and it turned out that deal had nothing to do whatsoever with Jesus Christ, God doesn't make those kind of deals. God is going to be true to himself. What you need is not a deal. You need the Holy Spirit. If you're not holy, the Bible tells us you will not see God. The first step in this is to have the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to your sin debt, to your account. That's done by faith so that you can be reborn. Christ died for your sins. We all know he didn't stay dead. Praise the Lord. He rose on the third day to demonstrate that his claims to be God were true. Today, he is alive. 
The Bible says that Jesus, who committed no sins during his time here on earth, willingly went and offered up himself on that cross to die in your place to satisfy God's wrath on your behalf. He died in your place. He committed no sins. It says he became sin for us so that we might be declared righteous by God. So on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins. In exchange for that, that's not the end of the story. Martin Luther calls this uh, the great exchange or in some places the happy exchange. So what happens is Jesus goes to the cross, sinless, not deserving of any of it, takes your sin. My old pastor used to use his keys to demonstrate this. If this represents sin, this is me, this is Jesus with no sin. Jesus takes my sin and gives me his righteousness, his holiness, his wisdom, so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see the old sinner. He sees the redeemed believer with faith in Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus. And he takes my sin, by the way, and he doesn't throw it back on me when I mess up. What does it say? What does he do with my sins? It says he removes them. He takes them away. He removes them as far as the east is from the west and will remember them no more. The God who knows it all will not bring up my sin ever again because of Jesus. If you don't know about that, if you're sitting here and you're not sure where you stand, I would encourage you not to leave this place this morning until you can sit down with someone in this room I can show that to you. There are several. And I can't imagine any of us who'd be willing to do that would be unwilling to sit down with you as long as it takes. So the bottom line, sum it up, God is holy, right? Because God is holy, what? We got to be holy. And God doesn't just tell us to be holy. What does he do? He gives us his Holy Spirit who indwells us to empower us to be holy. Without the holiness of Christ, nobody is going to ever see God. Not here, not in eternity future, not in heaven. Beware of the pitfall of comparing yourself to anybody else. Christ is the standard, not other people. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we need you, Father. It, we don't even know how bad or how much, but we're grateful for where your word says, well, we don't even know how to pray that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us with unutterable groanings. What comfort that brings. And we know that our Savior, Jesus, prays for us. And so we just want to ask, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that you would teach us how to be holy, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us the wisdom to take what we're taught by the Holy Spirit and put it into practice in our own lives so that 
none of us who walked in here this morning would walk out the same way we came in and the same condition. So have your way with us, Father. May your Holy Spirit be our guide and our teacher as we go from here this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.